Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Burn. Tonight, well, it's that time of year again. Time to fall back, roll the clocks back this weekend. If you're like me, it always kind of leaves me feeling a little discombobulated, especially it kind of disrupts my sleep habits. So we're going to get some advice on how to beat back, turning back the clock, especially when it comes to getting a good night's rest. You may know that Alberta is one of the few areas in the world that is officially rat-free. It has been proudly and resolutely rat-free since the 1950s, but an infestation at two Calgary recycling plants is a bit of a cause for concern. We meet the province's head of rat control. There is one for a bit of that history and what they're doing about this latest scare. But first up, finance ministers from across the country, including the federal finance minister, met today in an emergency virtual meeting to tackle Alberta's proposal to abandon the Canada Pension Plan and set up something of its own. Now, a study commissioned by the province found that they would be entitled to as much as $334 billion of that pension fund should they go off on their own. That's more than half of the fund's assets. So that's raised a lot of alarms elsewhere in the country. Alberta's Finance Minister, Nate Horner, joins me to talk about what was said at the meeting, what they heard, and what impact that could have on Alberta's path forward. Uh, Let's start tonight with that meeting of finance ministers that took place virtually uh, today. It included the provincial and territorial ministers, uh, or provincial ministers rather, and uh, Christian Freeland, the deputy prime minister and finance minister. And it was called uh, sort of in haste. It was an emergency meeting of sorts after Ontario's finance minister asked for it. The uh, agenda, the subject on the table, of course, is Alberta's plan or proposal at least to leave the Canada pension plan and to set up their own uh, Alberta pension plan, as it were. The big sticking point at at this point is the amount of money that a study commissioned by Alberta uh, says they would be owed if they were to leave. And that's about $330 billion. That's more of half the plan's assets. So a big amount of money and certainly provinces with big populations that have been paying into that pension plan for decades now are a little bit concerned about this. So thus, everyone got together to talk about it. Christia Freeland made sure, I mean, she's obviously opposed to this. She's come out uh, uh, opposed to it. So of course, has the prime minister, so has the leader of the opposition, uh, Pierre Polyev. Uh, But Christia Freeland did take time today to list all the steps she thinks the Alberta and federal governments would need to take if Alberta does indeed decide to withdraw the province from the CPP, which of course they are allowed to do. Just the formula is something that has never been done before. So it's up for uh, quite a bit of debate. Here is uh, Christian Freeland. At the end of the day, this conversation is all about the well-being and the financial security of all Canadians. Since the CPP was founded nearly 60 years ago, no province has ever left. This action is unprecedented. It would be very complicated. Right. So she made that point very clear. Uh, Danielle Smith has plans to hold a possible referendum on leaving the CPP sometime in 2025. But she says she won't go ahead with a vote uh, until governments or until they get a hard number. So they've asked uh, the feds to give them a number and they've agreed to that. So that could slow everything down for a bit. Here's what Danielle Smith had to say last week. I think we need to have that, that number figured out. And I, I, whether, it's, whether the federal government comes to the table, the CPP Investment Board does, or the court does, we will have a firm number before we go into a referendum. Well, one of the people at the table today, of course, one of the ones probably being asked a lot of questions was Alberta's Finance Minister, Nate Horner. Uh, and he joins me now. Nate, thank you very much. No problem. Good to be with you, Ben. 
This was a, a sort of a, a sort of classified as an emergency meeting between all the finance ministers, the provincial ministers, uh, as well as the federal finance minister. You went and say you wanted to hear everyone out. Uh, what did you hear? Yeah, no, we definitely heard everyone out. I think it was an interesting meeting in the sense that we did get some clarity. Everyone agreed that any any province would have the the ability to do this, and it would be up to that province. And the and the feds agreed to. Um, have the chief actuary uh, look into the formula. Had to correct Mr. Freeland a little bit. She was claiming that this was our our formula and it was faulty. And I had to clarify that no, it's it's in the CPP Act and it's yours. So I I think it was good in that sense. Definitely heard heard from everybody. They obviously would like Alberta to stay in. Then I heard a lot about the carbon tax as well, and uh, right. we were not able to discuss that in, in, with much depth. Okay, you weren't able to, because I know that was also a, a call from the Premier, uh, from Daniel Smith, that, that that be brought up as well. Uh, on the pension side, I mean, there were so, obviously some some issues. I mean, the number has been talked about a lot since the TELUS report came out uh, with the $334 billion and so forth. And that number seems to be bandied about it a lot. What you wanted from Ottawa was for them to come up with what they think, if that's not a fair number, then what is a fair number? Is that what you were looking for? Well, yes, we want analysis of their withdrawal formula. So like there's always been a withdrawal formula. And if you look back into the inception of CPP, the provinces demanded it or they would not join. It was made very clear that the only way they would be part of this, if there was a way that they could unwind themselves. And that formula itself was amended in 1997 when the plan was changed from a pay-as-you-go to a modified pay-as-you-go. And that's where, you know, contributions went up and investment income became more of a thing. And then it was actually amended again by this Liberal government in 2017 when they added the additional benefits. So the formula's uh, been updated even by them. Um, We want them to analyze it and tell us what would Alberta's number be. And then you can go from there, I suppose. Um, you, you've now sort of laid out the plan for a potential referendum. It's still quite vague, I gather. I mean, you, you sort of said when you're going to do it uh, as well as, but not what the question will be, not whether it's binding or not. Under what circumstances, do, do you have a better idea now of your threshold for actually having a referendum? I think that we would have to see strong support from Albertans uh, to proceed, you know, and uh, we've we, we started an engagement panel with former Minister Dinning. We've been out in public, you know, using the report. And I've been clear, this is the best information that we have, is this Morneau-Chapelle um, LifeWorks report. And we had it validated by, by multiple, you know, legal and actuarial firms before we um, would have taken it into the public. But I've also said that we, we will have this conversation with Albertans with the best information that we have. And so I was I was pleased from the meeting that um, Minister Freeland agreed to involve the chief actuary. If that if that information changes, that would obviously change the change the conversation. Right. And and in terms of what you're hearing so far, do you feel like you have a sense of of where this conversation is going? Because I think there are only five uh, public consultation uh, setups, uh, call ins, I guess they are with with former Minister Dinning at this point. And I think you've gone through a few of them already. I mean, you might have a relatively good idea of of where this is headed at this point in time. Well, and this might this might change things, too, with this new information today. I I plan on uh, I plan on speaking to Jim as soon as I'm able but I think it's important we, we follow through on the uh, the five telephone town halls that we committed to, they, especially considering they were regional. 
spread out across the province. And I think the, the information is still important, but we may, we may have to change things now that the um, federal government's agreed to, you know, dig into this and get an opinion from the chief actuary. Right. Might delay things a bit. Uh, obviously, there is concern. I mean, if you look at what the CPP is, it is essentially something that everyone paid into. It's it's grown. I mean, I understand the argument made with a younger population that contributes because they're younger. I mean, each Canadian contributes the same. It's just more of them happen to be in Alberta, or at least a higher proportion of them happen to be in Alberta compared to the size of the population. Have you looked did you consider what might the impact? Because this isn't about... I mean, this is this is a, a, a full nation thing outside of Quebec. I mean, everyone's paid into this. Everyone feels like it's their their pension. And so if one group of people says, well, no, it's not really your pension. It's our pension. It starts to it, it can, 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 really can ruffle some feathers. Did you take that in, into consideration before marching down this path? I think certainly I knew, knew this would be a, a conversation that would uh, be somewhat controversial but I, I think it's important to understand how this started within our province too. You know, this this was a recommendation from the the Fair Deal panel that went around the province, you know, looking for ways to seek more autonomy for the for the province. So I, I think it's important that we followed through and we commissioned the report, and now we're sharing the report with Albertans. You know, that was something I heard a lot was, "Are you going to release the report?" I would hate to not release the report. Mm-hmm. So we've released the report. We're having the conversation. You mentioned the impact to the rest of Canada. If the report shows that if Alberta did uh, withdraw at, at an asset transfer of uh, $334 billion, which is kind of the middle number, it says this is publicly available data. There's a range. It could be from 260 to 360. That was the, the closest they could get with the data that they had. It shows that it, uh, contributions would need to increase for CPP um, post an Alberta withdrawal by $175 per person per year. That's the magnitude of the, of the impact. Right. I, I know. I mean, I, I worked at a pension fund, so I can tell you if you take away half their assets under management, that impacts the whole fund, right? I mean, they're invested around the world. This is, you just don't re- withdraw the money, walk away and then reinvest it. I mean, this is, this is going to be a heavily, very complicated divorce. I, I suspect uh, long beyond this, uh, I'm speaking with Nate Horner, who is the Minister of Finance from Alberta. They had a big meeting today, obviously. It was uh, requested by the Finance Minister in Ontario, convened by the Federal Finance Minister, to talk about things, including uh, this idea of Alberta withdrawing from the Canada Pension Plan. That's come up. You're going to have another, I gather, before I I go to break, you're going to have another meeting. Is that right, coming up a little bit later this month? Uh, That's what we're hearing now. Um, Minister Freeland refused to talk about carbon tax, and at least half of the finance ministers made it quite clear that that was the most pressing issue for Canadians regarding affordability right Right. now. We've heard clearly from Atlantic Canadians through our amazing Atlantic MPs that since the federal pollution price came into force this summer, replacing provincial systems, certain features of that pollution price needed to be adjusted to work for everyone. Nate Horner is with us, Alberta's finance minister, president of the Treasury Board as well. We've been talking about this meeting today, finance ministers from across the country had, including uh, the federal counterpart, Christia Freeland, about uh, really it was called to talk about Alberta's uh, plan or proposal, uh, perhaps, to withdraw from the Canada Pension Plan and where that's headed, concerns from other finance ministers. Of course, the carbon tax has been front and center uh, since the federal government decided to give a carve out to uh, those who heat with uh, oil, home heating oil. That specifically benefits uh, 
uh, Atlantic Canada, mainly because only because that's where most people who heat with home heating oil live. Uh, and other provinces are saying, well, wait a second, our our population might need a break on this too. Uh, how did that, I know that you went in there specifically, I know the, the Premier, Daniel Smith, asked that this be raised. Um, it, it, I gather you didn't get a chance really to talk about this at any great length. Well, it, it definitely got brought up by, by multiple finance ministers um, from, from across the country, even from some in Atlanta, Canada, that you know, are, are able to enjoy at least some of this carve-out. But uh, no, I, there, wasn't, there was a lot of frustration in the meeting at the uh, you know, lack of willingness to really get into it at all. Um, so I think we'll see some stronger demands that uh, if this is how quickly we can come together over – something that they they claim is urgent then uh, something that's unfolding right in front of us right now we should be able to do the same thing so i think i think that's what uh, minister freeland's going to hear Right. What, what what was being said around the table? Because I know that uh, certainly provinces where the carbon tax is not popular, uh, for instance, in Manitoba now under an NDP government, they've, they've been a little bit more, they've been quieter about it. Uh, but certainly in, in Saskatchewan, we know what uh, Premier Mo is up to, Alberta, uh, Ontario is, I guess, somewhere in the middle. What were you hearing around the table today? What What do you want? What would the provinces like to see together from the federal government? Get rid of the tax. That's what, that's Alberta's position. You know, I, I can't speak for everyone else. There's lots of talk about, you know, the unfairness. It's it's been a failure of attacks. It had they have not been able to show uh, any emissions that they've saved from it, other than chasing them to a different jurisdiction. But where we're at now is we're still in an affordability crisis. We know natural gas burns thirty percent cleaner than heating oil. So uh, that was that was our suggestion: change it and change it fast. And the response today at least well that's not what this meeting's about aha uh-huh. well it wasn't but in all fairness so so that's what you've been getting you because they've said essentially no carve outs but uh you weren't you didn't even hear a no from the from the federal finance minister today you just heard that's not what this meeting's about well she she was quite quite clear that that was that was her take but it was forced on her multiple times and i expect it will be again Right. So the plan again is is for perhaps you've called for another meeting. Is that right? I was sort of I was reading that there could be um, eager to have another meeting scheduled for December 14th or 15th. So coming up to talk about some of these issues again. Yes, it sounds like it. That was news to, to us till today. But uh, it sounds like we have another meeting upcoming and I expect uh, expect the carbon tax will be uh, high on the priorities of everyone. Right. Or it sure should be. If you're a finance minister in this country, how couldn't it be? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, as a finance minister, I, I'm sure you look at the Atlantic Canadian situation, how the carbon tax was applied, when, on what, and realize that that the affordability issue was pretty acute in Atlantic Canada, thus the carve-out. But uh, from your perspective, I suppose once one carve-out was given, it created an unfairness within the tax, and you can't really have that, right? Well, certainly. You know, I'd, I'd hate to think they're weaponizing this tax to earn votes in Atlantic Canada. Is that what we're talking about? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think... Probably a little bit of both, a little bit of both. I think Atlantic Canadians needed a break on home eating oil because it had become really expensive. Uh, you know, politically, it, it made sense for them as well. On the pension, what next for the pension stuff? Are you are you going to wait now for this number? Is that is that is it sort of on pause until you the federal government says comes out and says, here's what we think. Uh, here's you. I we see your three hundred thirty four billion. We believe it should be you know closer to something like half that. Well, I think I think yeah, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see for that number. It may change uh, it may change our engagement strategy within the province, though. I, but like I said, uh, 
the meeting was just uh, just this morning. I haven't got a chance to speak to Minister Denny yet, but that's that's where I'm, what I'm thinking early days. Right. So would that mean different, more engagement? Or that would sort of expand the engagement process? Well, the, the plan was he was going to, they were going to run until May mm-hmm. and then uh, provide us with a, a report. But we may have to uh, let them continue with, with what they have scheduled and get the full coverage of the province through the telephone town halls and then maybe an interim report of some kind. Well, Minister Horn, do you have an idea of how long that might take for the feds? Have they given you a timeline and when they can come back with a number? Uh, we told them, obviously, as, as soon as possible would be helpful, but I, I know this is fairly sub- substantive stuff, so we'll probably require a little time, I think at least a month, but uh, I don't have those details. And we're, and we're heading into the holidays as well. Well, Minister Horner, thank you. Sure. Yeah, thank you very much. Good to talk to you, Ben. Honestly, people outside of Alberta probably picture Alberta really as a land of oil and gas, but there's been something of a green revolution going on in the province in recent times with an estimated $5 billion invested in renewable energy, such as wind and solar, since 2019 alone. That's a lot of money. It was sparked by a plan put forth by the former NDP government under Rachel Notley to target 30% renewable energy by 2030. But that boom was thrown into doubt in early August when the UCP government declared a six-month pause on all new renewable energy projects in the province. We have put a six-month pause to figure out whether or not we can address these issues of reliability and affordability and siting and reclamation. Six months, we will have new policy in six months. It did come as a surprise. Um, nobody would have thought that we would be looking at a, a six-month shutdown. Is it a good idea to pause a booming industry and just put it on hold and make stranded assets and potentially have people that are already in short supply leaving the jurisdiction? Well, those are the questions that Heather Urich's West, Global National's Alberta correspondent, tackles in a piece she's done for the new reality uh, this weekend, and she joins me now. Heather, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. What an interesting topic. I mean, I think a lot of people just don't realize what, what's happened in Alberta in the last little bit. I mean, there's been a big boom there, and you really went out to find it. Yeah, what was so interesting in producing this story is that, like you mentioned, it really changed while we were in the midst of production. We had this quiet revolution happening. This industry over the last 10 years had really come up out of nowhere to the point where it was a multi-billion dollar industry, you know, far outpacing anything that any other province was seeing um, and really falling under the radar. If you would drive around southern Alberta, you would notice all of a sudden you'd have fields full of solar panels. And, and wind turbines just sort of popping up everywhere. And then in August, this surprise announcement that from the UCP government that uh, they, they felt it was all happening too fast and they were putting a, a pause on it, even you know while the industry was expecting to make another $1.5 billion this year alone. So it was uh, a really uh, captivating story. We had to you know change course and, and really start to dig into, you know, while this was happening, finding out all of these people that were really against this renewable boom um, that was bringing in so much investment into the province. Right. And, and you mentioned in the piece, and this is interesting too, this was fueled, again, I mentioned it very briefly by something the NDP did back uh, under Rachel Notley, which was to kind of encourage this by sort of opening up a market for these renewable energy projects that made it attractive even to companies you'd associate with oil and gas. Yeah, so this goes back to about 2015-2016, the rare NDP government that this province, this, this you know, typically conservative government has, 
uh, Rachel Notley decide, introduces her climate plan, which includes uh, a move to get off of uh, coal, uh, electricity. So she's trying to attract more wind and solar energy. And so she opens up these these auctions and also uh, puts in place a policy that, you know, the winners of these auctions, these developers, um, the government will will, you know, guarantee a certain price. And if, if right. the, the price for, for electricity falls below, then the government will kind of top it up. You know, it'll act like a subsidy. But if it is higher than that, then the government stands to make a profit. Well, that's exactly what happened. And years later, um, you know, the, the government has made millions of dollars from this. And, and not only that, by the time it's cancelled, uh, this program is cancelled by the next UCP government, you know, the match has been lit and, uh, and investors are just flocking. Now, the other reason that they're flocking to this to Alberta is because unlike any other province, there's a wide open uh, electricity market. It's not owned by any crown corporation. So anyone's free to come in, set up uh, a, a wind or solar project. And because of these, these other, the, the, the other sort of magic ingredient is these power purchase agreements. So um, companies that are looking to kind of green, uh, lower their carbon footprint by, by, you know, finding some green energy credits like the Microsoft, the Amazons, they're able to come and purchase the power and uh, invest in these wind and solars. And then we just see the market just exploding and, and billions of dollars coming to Alberta. It sounds like some good old-fashioned Alberta ingenuity. I know there's a lot of sunshine there, too, so that helps, and some wind, too. The pause, though. I mean, I actually spoke to Danielle Smith about this, and she, you know, I, we talked about Orphan Wells and so on, and she just said, well, we don't want to make that mistake again. You you dug into this a bit. What What is behind this pause? Is it simply ideological, or is there reason to, to sort of go up? Is it growing too fast? Yeah, and that's an interesting argument because, you know, people were quick to point out that there's never been a pause in oil and gas development, even when it was booming considerably, right? So, yeah, there, there certainly seems to be an ideological component. Um, we spoke with the head of the Rural Municipalities um, Association. They're quite, they were quite concerned with the boom. They're worried that um, we're seeing too much of these big solar and wind projects happen on agricultural land. Um, so that's one component. And then also, interestingly, just weeks after the pause is announced, Alberta, you know, launches their campaign, um, pushing back against the federal government's uh, push to green the grid, the Stop the Feds campaign. You've probably seen the ads. I know that in Toronto, the TTC, the streetcars are wrapped in them. So, you know, this is all happening around the same time. Um, natural gas is something that uh, Danielle Smith has said that, you know, Alberta needs and, and will continue to, do, to make sure that, you know, the lights stay on when the wind isn't blowing and, and the sun isn't shining. So, yeah, there's definitely a component there. Uh, this pause is supposed to be six months, so we will see what happens at the end of February. But in the meantime, there's no guarantee that all of these investors will continue to invest in Alberta because, you know, in the meantime... All these other provinces and across the U.S. have been clamoring for the investment, too. So, uh, you know, momentum that was decades in the making, it, it may not just it may not come back.
Yeah, I mean Texas, ironically, is has the biggest uh, is the biggest supplier, I think, of renewable renewable energy in America. Speaking of another place that knows its energy knows its traditional energy sources well, it's, it would make sense for Alberta. It knows how to do energy, right? So it doesn't matter where the energy is coming from. You've mentioned there's already been an impact, and and, and I think this is really the focus of the piece. I don't want to give it all away, so people should watch it tomorrow night. But uh, this is this the end of the? I mean, does does this put the boom into into doubt? Well, anytime you introduce market uncertainty into the market, you know, companies are wary. It costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time to develop these projects. So, you know, at the end of this six months, the question has already been introduced. What will the government do, you know, in a year? Is this something that, that they can rely on? So, yeah, I spoke with one company, Blue Earth Renewables. They were set to more than double their investment in Alberta in the coming years. And, and the CEO says, we're looking elsewhere. We're looking across uh, the U.S. Um, other provinces now have really kind of introduced incentives. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, the, the, the Alberta could lose tens of billions of dollars um, worth of investment in the future because of this pause. And what was the reaction to that? Because, again, I don't think I've ever heard of Alberta turning away investment. I mean, across the industry, there there is so much frustration. Um, there's there's a lot of confusion around why this is this is happening. That the you know the premier and the province remains, um, you know, committed to to their their stance that that they needed to pause this to have some sort of uh, thoughtful land use uh, plan to talk about things like reclamation and uh, you know agricultural planned and that sort of thing but whether or not they needed they needed to do a, a full pause it, it's it's really interesting and it's um i mean it, like you said it's really interesting to see a government that has really prided itself on a free enterprise and an attracting investment and being government i mean being business friendly you know shut the door on an industry that was growing so much yeah, and as you pointed out, a lot of these companies uh, have have investments in oil and gas as well. These aren't sort of this isn't two guys, you know, this isn't sort of you know guys in a, in a in a Volkswagen bus with a wind turbine. These are big companies that are making these investments as well. Because they see the money, they see the the potential to to make money. We had I got an up close look, and you'll see in the piece um, uh, the, these two new solar farms that have been built right inside of uh, Calgary, just minutes from downtown, and they're operated by ATCO, which is a company that is synonymous with natural gas. ATCO has been investing heavily in renewables. And in fact, they just recently acquired a, a, a portfolio of assets from another uh, company very familiar in the uh, oil and gas uh, industry, Suncor, right? Uh, oil sands giant. They had developed $730 million worth of wind and solar assets. Suncor decided to divest. So ATCO picked up that, that suite of um, of assets. So yeah, these are companies that uh, are diversifying into uh, renewable energy because they they see that there's money to be made and uh, that it's the future. Heather, uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. Look forward to seeing you. So I've watched it. I'll watch it again. Thanks so much for your, for your time and explaining <laughs> the piece tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. A story about a rat infestation at two recycling plants in Calgary probably wouldn't be news in most places in the world, certainly not in a place like New York. Uh, but most places aren't Alberta. The province has actually been proudly and resolutely rat-free since the 1950s when a rat control program was set up. It makes it one of the only jurisdictions in the world 
to be able to say that. And it's pretty exceptional for a province that is landlocked, right? It's not an island. It's not Antarctica. And it turns out the province employs a team to make sure it stays that way. And joining me now is Karen Wickerson. She is rat and pest specialist in the Department of Agriculture for the government of Alberta. Karen, thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. That's, it's not a title you see in every government. What a job. What, what exactly do you do? So I run the provincial program for the rat control program for the province of Alberta. And I am responsible for ensuring that Alberta stays rat free. Which it has been now for since 1950, right? It's been many, many, many years. That's correct. Yeah, the the program started in the early 1950s when rats were discovered at the Alberta-Saskatchewan border. How did you get involved in that? Um, I'm not sure how I ended up here. Most most little girls don't grow up um, dreaming of being <laughs> uh, running the rat control program. So um, I do have an animal health background. I am a registered veterinary technologist, and I've I've worked in rural mixed animal prop, uh, practices, and so rural Alberta, of course. Um, and yeah, I've worked for the government now for almost 13 years. Um, and I've been running this program for four years. So um, I was lucky. I, I, um, my, I had a conversation with my now manager, and he was looking for someone who was interested in taking over the rat control program, someone who was really interested in and rats. Right. So I, I stepped up and said, wow, that, that sounds really, really cool. <laughs> I know. I mean, you, you were telling me you're originally from Ontario. I'm originally from Quebec. I did spend a little bit of time in, in Alberta when I was younger. Uh, but this has been a real point of pride, uh, amongst other things, for Alberta for, for since way back then. Definitely. You know, I, I receive email reports daily and, and phone reports of people reporting rat sightings to me. And some people go to great lengths to get a hold of me. Like <laughs> they, they talk about how, you know, they grew up in Alberta and some people, grew, of course, grew up on farms in Alberta and they knew about the rat patrol. And so um, and, and how important it is for us to stay rat free. So they will they will try and get a hold of me. <laughs> any time of day um in I any way possible yeah 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 so yeah it's 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 such a great source of pride i mean i think anyone who's grown up in a city is just familiar with having rats around uh as 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 we are if you've grown up in a place like a montreal or you know forbid you've ever been to new york city but why is it so important for alberta to stay rat free beyond just the reputational side of it yeah, and historically, you know, it was an agriculturally based program. It started because rats were discovered in rural Alberta and they knew the damage they could cause to agricultural products, stored grain, even the infrastructure themselves, the barns. And um, so we're very aware that um, they can damage infrastructure. So in those big cities that you've talked about, we know if they get into a housing complex, um, they can chew wiring, cause fires and compromise the integrity of the structure themselves. So definitely, um, you know, the, the cost is millions of dollars, if, you know, hundreds of million dollars that they can do uh, to infrastructure. But also, you know, there is a disease concern. So public health concerns, right? Because if, if people live in close quarters to rats, they can spread disease as well. And Alberta, just so listeners understand, is one of the few jurisdictions outside of sort of islands and Antarctica in the world that is officially rat-free. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I actually receive calls from people all over the world, literally, 
saying, I have rats, I'm desperate, what can I do to wow. control them? So you're like a rat guru right, for worldwide. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's really, um, you know, it's hard for me to, to give people advice because the great thing about our program and, and the officials who set it up was they were very forward thinking. They saw <laughs> what rats can do if they permanently established. So when they declared rats a pest in Alberta, you know, everyone was required to control them. So, you know, they were never allowed to establish permanently anywhere. You've had, uh, as always, uh, I suspect you get infestation. I mean, you know, Alberta's not not an island, so it, you, you have infestations now. And then you have a, a couple of ones going on now, I guess, in, in Calgary at recycling plants. Is, is that a cause for concern? Could that, is, is there any, I suppose you've targeted them and found them, but is that a cause for concern? Definitely. We, we take infestations very seriously. Uh, these are these are complicated ones. They're complex in that um, the recycling facilities are always bringing in a constant source of food for these rats um, through, you know, blue box material if, if packages aren't cleaned out properly with food waste. Uh, and also the areas within the facilities, um, they, they have areas for the rats to nest in that we can't access easily. So um, it, it, is, it is quite challenging. I mean, obviously, they're very smart. They know how to evade us. They're one of the most successful invasive species in the world. Um, so we, 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 we are taking this very, very seriously. Is it cause for concern more broadly? Or I, I guess in these cases, once you identify where they are, then you can go about making sure that everything else around it stays rat-free. Yeah, and, and the great thing about the good thing about this, I, I guess, is that they are um, contained in this recycling facility. They have a food source and they have shelter, so they don't want to to leave. Uh, and now with the cold weather, uh, you know, they're less inclined to even try and go outside. So we certainly uh, around the perimeter of both these facilities monitor. Um, we we have provisions in place that if they do leave, um, <laughs> we can catch them. Yeah, I gather you're in contact with them. I mean, this is this is serious stuff. I think sometimes, I mean, we 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 jest a bit, but it's serious stuff. Yes, yeah, yeah. I I am into the facilities weekly to oversee um, kind of what's what get a general idea of how things are going. So, um, yeah, yeah, and I have to report back to hire people higher up than me. <laughs> I know this was before your time in this position, but I gather the last big one was at a landfill in Medicine Hat, and that one took a while. That one took a while to eradicate. Yeah, um, so the Medicine Hat Landfill, again, another challenging environment, a landfill, uh, lots of food and shelter. And and the other tricky thing is they can go uh, live there for a while and go undetected, right, because they're nocturnal. They're not going to come out during the day, so people can't see them. So that particular infestation did take two years to eradicate, but um, we were successful. We, we got rid of them. Right. Uh, and in this case, I suppose this will, might, might take a while as well, but, but technically, I mean, technically, realistically, you're still, everything seems to be, I don't think people understand just how much this is monitored and under control, right? That's, you know, you'd think maybe one infestation would lead to many, many others, but clearly in, this, in, in Alberta, that's not the case. You're there amongst others. Yeah, yeah. To have a, a person designated strictly for rat control um, really helps, <laughs> um, but <laughs> Yeah, and, and I don't think people understand, too, when we talk about our rat-free status, you know, that we, rats do get into Alberta. I, I can't check every vehicle coming or, or truck coming into Alberta. The big thing is we just don't let them to permanently establish. So we, we work to as quickly as we can to eradicate them. 
Well, Karen, uh, thank you so much for sharing what it is that you do and and um, and why Alberta's rat-free status has managed to stay that way, even though, again, it's surrounded by land and people coming in and out uh, for the better part of 70 years now. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, guys, that's it. Closing time. All right. It's hard to believe 17 hours could slip by that quickly. <laughs> yeah cheers you can't beat cheers a famous scene of course as they're norman cliff are leaving the bar and uh, and it's daylight. It's it's turn back the clock's time. It's fall back. So of course, another hour, right? And that's what's happening this weekend. We're about to turn back uh, the clocks. It's fall back overnight Saturday into Sunday. We're gonna go from daylight saving time back to standard time. So we get to enjoy an extra hour this weekend doing something. Most of us are probably asleep, right? But uh, there is that extra hour for the weekend there, um, and that. You know, that those are benefits. I guess you could also have a few drawbacks, right? Road and pedestrian safety is always a concern as the days grow shorter at this time of year anyway. And then daylight, of course, disappears earlier in the afternoon. Everyone's just a little discombobulated at the beginning. It also messes up with our sleep cycles a little bit, throwing our internal clock out of whack for some time. That can be especially true for kids. Now, it's probably a little more acute uh, when we spring forward in the spring. and But in the fall, it, it's, it's similar as well. So we thought we'd get some advice for parents and the rest of us about how how to sort of cope with falling back when it comes to comes to taking care of yourself, especially your sleep patterns. Uh, Anya McLaren Barnett, or Dr. Anya McLaren Barnett, is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics uh, at McMaster University. She's also a sleep medicine physician, and she joins me now. Dr. McLaren Barnett, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's interesting. We always talk about, I mean, I think as a, as a society, we're a bit obsessed with, with, you know, springing forward and falling back. I guess the good news here is that falling back seems to be a little bit less disruptive sleep-wise than springing forward. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with that statement. I think that uh, it, it's, it's important to consider that for parents of young children, it sometimes uh, is not less of a uh, uh, disruption. So, uh, you know, young children will continue to sort of get up at their routine, routine time, irrespective of uh, the fall back in, in fall. And so uh, that sometimes can lead to, to parents that are a bit more on the sleep deprived end um, for the first two weeks as we adjust to the changes. Right. I, what what goes on with us? I've I've heard it compared to jet lag, but what happens to to us uh, both in the spring and then again this weekend? What happens to the body when we change the clocks, even an hour? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that our bodies are regulated from you know our digestion to our sleep, our uh, immune system, and our uh, hormone or endocrine system is really that it's regulated by this master clock, um, so to speak, called a circadian rhythm, uh, which which is in the brain. We also, in all of our cells, have um, mini uh, clocks. And so 
it follows this natural rhythm. Uh, and when it comes to sleep, uh, that rhythm is one where our peak alertness occurs uh, in the early morning. And, uh, it, you know, we begin to feel tired at night. And that aligns quite well with uh, the sunlight. And so, you know, what what ends up happening when we we change, you know, our, our time or our clock um, is that it, there's a bit of a misalignment. And so when we spring forward in spring, you know, it seems like it, it's minor because it's just one hour, but it's not so minor for our bodies. Um, you know, there is, is some evidence around the impact of uh, that spring forward, uh, you know, on not just physical health from a stroke and heart rate, heart attack perspective, but also from a mental health perspective when we talk about, um, you know, mood uh, and we know overall sleep is really important for, uh, you know, our attention, our regulation, our, sorry, our impulse control um, and, decision making uh, and so so those those tend to be impacted with any disruption in our circadian rhythm uh which happens with daylight savings and and not just daylight savings right like taking across sorry a flight across the atlantic for yes. example uh where we experience jet lag has similar types of um impacts and so 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 yeah it does it does definitely impact us there's no doubt about it and I suppose it impacts different people differently. Uh, but you, I mean, you specialize, you often specialize in how it impacts children. And I think that's a big issue for parents as well, because it's harder for them to, it's harder for the kids to explain what's going on with their sleep patterns, right? But I, I, I suppose it impacts people differently, right? Not everyone's going to feel the same, quote unquote, discombobulation with the time change as someone else might feel. Exactly, exactly. And it's really important to realize that, that just like any, uh, other uh, ex experience we have, there is differential sort of impact. There are individuals who, for different reasons, might have higher vulnerabilities to changes in uh, daylight savings. So um, from the pediatric perspective, you know, children who rely on daylight and cues uh, related to our environments like children uh, who are neurodivergent, uh, including kids with autism, uh, it can be a bit more of an adjustment for them compared to a child who does not have uh, that that diagnosis. Um, you know, similarly, individuals who have underlying mental health vulnerabilities may be a bit more sensitive to changes in, uh, you know, the the daylight savings um, with changes with daylight savings time. So, uh, you know, it it. It, it the impact I think is universal to us some to some extent, but it may not be as significant in some individuals as it as it is in others. Uh, and I think what what there is there seems to be some evidence to point towards individuals who may have you know a shift in their circadian rhythm that sort of is persistent. So they have this misalignment and and it sort of persists even when we switch back in November. Um, and so. Uh, important to to be aware of, and I think not just uh, you know as an, an as a society, but also from a physician or or primary care provider perspective, that um, this is this is a time where we want to just be be a bit more sensitive to what uh, potential triggers could be to to what we see coming into to through our doors. Yeah, it strikes me that we know, or at least we talk about this a lot more than we ever used to. I mean, I, I, I and and that's a good thing. 
I agree. I agree. I think that, um, you know, I often uh, say and have said in the last few days as I've been having different conversations about this, that, you know, the sleep, poor sleep health in our society is, is a big uh, silent, I would say, epidemic. I mean, the CDC uh, Center for Disease Control in the U.S. did declare poor sleep health to be a public health epidemic uh, a few years back. And, you know, the reality is that we get less less sleep and less good quality sleep uh, now than we did many years back. And there are many factors related to this, but, you know, I think we don't talk about it often enough. Uh, and so when daylight savings time does come around, there is more um, emphasis on sleep. Uh, and I, I wish that this conversation could be carried on, uh, you know, beyond the windows of, um, you know, the first the, the week leading up to this November 6th change and, and the weeks leading up to March as well when we we go enter into daylight savings because, you know, poor sleep health, We every year we get more and more evidence about the impact of it. Um, and definitely going into something like daylight savings can exacerbate um, issues for, ch- for in children and other individuals who have underlying sleep-related uh, conditions. So, Dr. McLaren, what, what do you recommend? I, I know... I know there are things you can do to sort of ease yourself into this kind of a change to try to lessen the impacts. And that obviously, and for children, that must be important too, because you'd have to actually plan for that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, this is definitely a great question uh, to to think about. So, you know, I mean, the, the general sort of good sleep hygiene uh, practices uh, should be maintained or or initiated even sometimes having a change like daylight savings, whether we spring forward or fall back is a good time to in- implement, uh, you know, good sleep hygiene uh, practices. So, you know, one really important one is just consistency. So our circadian rhythm relies on consistent uh, bedtimes and wake times, and it, it works a lot better when we we have that input, you know, during the week as well as the weekend. And so ensuring that there is um, that consistency and a good routine that leads up to that. So, you know, getting rid of screens sort of at least an hour before bedtime is what is recommended. Um, If we have to be on screens using blue light filters um, is is a a great uh, thing to to implement. Uh, And doing some activity that is relaxing, calming and sort of winds you down and gets you ready for bed. Uh, gradually, well, in children, we gradually sort of offer or recommend to parents the week leading up to daylight savings uh, that, you know, advance or increase their bedtime to, to an hour, uh, well, later, but you do it incrementally. So by, you know, 15 minutes uh, every couple of days until they're at, you know, that hour ahead uh, of their bedtime. So when we fall back, the transition is cushioned a bit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, important to spend time outdoors as natural light is the driving force uh, behind our circadian rhythms. So, you know, we know that exposure to to sunlight can alleviate feelings of tiredness during the day. So going for a walk in the morning, if you can, or early morning, once you're at work for a coffee break, for example, and on the topic of coffee, trying to not consume too much caffeine uh, close to bedtime. So, you know, abstaining from coffee, 
caffeine sort of after no, after the noon mark, so 12 noon, uh, because the, the impact of caffeine on our sleep can persist uh, into the evening in some individuals. So uh, those are those are some of uh, the tips. I think that if, you know, napping can be something that you can implement in the next few weeks. Uh, typically, the recommendation, though, is to limit the nap to about 20 minutes because it can you can end up waking up a bit drowsy if you enter into the deep sleep uh, uh, or the deep phase of sleep, uh, which happens after that point. Right. And so the, I guess, yeah, those are the things you can do after the fact, right? Just sort of uh, allow. And I suppose, and you pointed it out earlier, it is just a good time to to be a little more mindful of your sleep patterns, right? Because there is this change. It mightn't be a change that you feel drastically, but it is a change. And maybe this is, as you pointed out, a good time to pay attention to how you sleep sure. when you sleep. For sure. Yeah. 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 Well, Dr. Uh, McLaren Barnett, thank you so much for your uh, insight on this. Uh, I guess, uh, do you have any, do you do anything particular for you? I mean, you're a sleep expert. I suppose you have to practice what you <laughs> preach, right? <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I've actually been using this opportunity uh, to really be very disciplined with getting to bed consistently, you know, at um, uh, a set time every night. I'm a mom of, mom of two young boys and getting home from work and doing the routine with them, which I'm really good at. At, um, but it does end up um, leading sometimes to to late nights when there are last minute things that need to get done. So um, I am committed to use this fallback uh, to to really be a bit more on top of my own sleep health. Well, Anya, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Stay in the Middle East for the, the rest of this half hour. It's still difficult times for the families of some of those 200 or more hostages being held by Hamas. They've been held hostage now for 28 days, 29 tomorrow. A soldier was rescued earlier this week. Four others have been released following negotiations, but that's been it. Among them uh, is family of Aaron Brodach, his sister-in-law, her three kids, 10-year-old, 8-year-old, and a 4-year-old, all abducted. It was believed by Hamas fighters uh, or by Hamas militants back on October the 7th. Um, and of course, the work is underway to try and get them released. But so far, it's been a very trying time for the families. And Aaron Brodach joins me now. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, I guess for, for the families, this continues to be such an agonizing wait, 28 days now. Um, and I don't I don't imagine there's been any any word because we just haven't seen anything. We haven't seen much of anything in 28 days, really. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's very, it's very difficult. Um, we're, we're really taking it day by day. Um, so it's hard to imagine that it's, it's been 28 days. Um, I heard in, in Toronto what, what had happened, um, that, uh, my brother's, uh, wife and his three children, uh, Ofli, who's 10 years old, Yuval, who's eight years old, and Uya, who's four years old, uh, were, um, taken by Hamas. Um, actually, w what I heard on October 7th is that they were killed mm. uh, because the last text message my brother received uh, was that uh, was that someone is coming in. And, uh, you know, he knew what was going on in the kibbutz. He knew that people were going uh, house to house, killing everyone and burning the houses. And so for a day and a half, we believe they're dead. Um, but a day and a half later, we, we got news that someone had seen them taken alive. Um, for me personally, I, I went from crying, you know, mourning 
to uh, to tears of joy at that moment. Um, and I flew to Israel expecting that within a week I'll see them. I did. I don't think anyone expected it to take this long. Um, we still remain hopeful. We still, every day, we think that today's the day. There's absolutely no reason why this is taking so long. It's, you know, this is a huge violation of, of human rights, um, you know, violation of international laws. It makes absolutely no sense uh, to have women and children uh, taken hostage. Um, and now Anthony Blinken is, is visiting mm-hmm. Israel and the region, and we're really hoping that uh, there's going to be uh, humanitarian ceasefire that will include uh, the exchange of hostages. I know there's been a lot of pressure put on the Israeli government by the families of the hostages in Israel itself. Um, there's clearly been, I mean, you met with the prime minister here to explain the situation. Um, it's, it's, it seems in some senses that this has become, it, it's, it's hard to see where the breakthrough is. I mean, there's been, there's been a few hostages released. We know that happened through negotiation four, I believe one that was, I gather, rescued this week. But other than that, um, have you, have you had any explanation as to it, whether there's anything going on in the background, whether there's any progress being made? Uh, no, if no. We know, you know, exactly the same stuff everyone else knows. I'm I'm sure that if there is news, they're not telling us because, <laughs> you know, we they don't want anything leaking out, and that's I, you know, that is absolutely acceptable. Um, for us, you know, news is not what we're looking for. We're looking for seeing our family back, and we're absolutely okay with dealing with uncertainty until that point. Um, but that point has to happen immediately. Uh, you know, Uriah is four years old. Yeah. Every day, his life is in danger. These are not nice people. Hamas, they're, they did <laughs> yeah. you know, horrible, doesn't even begin to describe what they've done. Um, so, you know. And your brother, too. I mean, he, he, he waits, right? He waits and hopes. That, that's right. So he, you know, Every every minute, you know, that passes is another minute where, you know, his family might be killed. Um, but he's he's working hard, and you know, nonstop to make sure that this. Uh, initially, you know, we we had to work very hard to make this the top uh, the top priority for the Israeli government. Um, at least now they're. You know, at least saying that it is a top priority, we don't know, you know, you never know what is going on behind the scenes, but at least at least they've they've come to a point where they're, you know, acknowledging that this is the top priority. Um, it should be the only priority. You know, the world is also pushing for um for you know something to be done about the hostages, but again it it's not always the top priority, which is unfortunate. I think in in this case, there's a lot of, there's a very complicated situation, but there's one piece that is extremely simple and it's you know, women and children being held hostage. This That's not controversial. I don't think anyone in his right mind thinks that this is, you know, a legitimate piece of, of the war. 
Yeah, I, I have no doubt that Hamas recognizes their value, unfortunately, as well, right? And therein lies therein lies the difficulty here is there would have to be some sort of there would have to be some sort of outreach. I got, I don't know whether that's happening behind the scenes and with the Qataris or who, I don't know, but they would have to be they would have to agree on how this works, uh, and and that seems unfortunately at, at this point like it's not happening and a humanitarian pause i mean i think that's been talked about a lot this is not a ceasefire i mean this, everyone gets into the semantics of this but this is simply an opportunity to pause to try to make sure that the innocent lives that are in danger you know your your brother's wife uh, and his children that that can be seen to before this conflict continues on its way right i mean i know how difficult that might sound but that that's essentially the best case scenario I, I agree. I mean, it seems like uh, humanitarian pause is currently uh, the best option. You know, I'm I'm not a military strategist. I don't know what other options are on the table and what the best way to do this. But currently, you know, from what uh, from what we're seeing, uh, there is there is going to be a push for a humanitarian pause that will include the exchange of hostages. And you know, if if that happens. That would be, you know, incredible news for for me. Incredible news for the families of the the other hostages. I think it would be incredible news for, you know, Israel and the world to see, you know, this specific humanitarian crisis ending. And, and to see your brother and his wife and his kids back together again. I mean. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. There's, there's, yeah. there's, 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 yeah, there's, I can only imagine in your shoes, nothing else matters. Yes. hundred percent. That is, uh, you know, complete, complete focus on that. Well, Aaron, obviously our thoughts and uh, our thoughts are with you and your family and, and could only hope, hope beyond hope that that is an image that we all get to see before too long. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. We're crossing our fingers. It happens this weekend. Oh,